Now, the state's fundamental responsibility is not to educate you, not to give you stimulus money, not to give you a job and all these other things it is doing that is going to ultimately bankrupt us. Its job is to protect us. It is to put down evil, and it is to praise good. It is to maintain peace. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're presenting a series of special messages over the next few weeks before beginning an in-depth study in one particular book of the Bible. Last week, we began a message entitled, God and Government. Dr. Brogy originally presented this sermon in January of this year, shortly after demonstrators tried to take over the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. We're looking at how the Bible instructs us to behave in relation to governing authorities even when we may not agree with the ideologies of those governments. Dr. Brogy noted last time that the role of government is to protect the populace and to put down evil. One of the ways government does that is through the righteous expression of capital punishment for extreme crimes. The government is given the sword as an instrument of death. Why? To avenge evil. The government is called to restrain evil. Jot down Genesis 9 in verse 6. Genesis 9, 6. God said there by Moses' pen, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. The taking of a human life in murder is such a heinous offense Because God has made us in his image, God says that the person who does it deserves the forfeiture forfeiture of his life. Listen to what Moses wrote in Exodus 21 and verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And if you've read the context of that verse, he's not talking about accidental death or manslaughter but cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And let me just add, the Bible teaches that when justice is administered, it is to be administered swiftly. The government loses its punch in exercising capital punishment if there's a large period of time between the crime and the punishment that the crime brings. And so Solomon wisely wrote in Exodus 11 by the Spirit of God, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. The average stay on death row in America is 14 years. Now, I believe in our judicial process, but unless somehow the process is sped up, capital punishment means very little. Some of them may say, well, capital punishment is cruel and it's unloving. No, it's not cruel. Coddling the criminal is cruel. Pacifying the murderer is cruel. Slapping the wrist is cruel. God has called government to protect the community. And when capital punishment is exercised biblically, where there is clear evidence, and the scripture demands at least two or three witnesses, and without the punishment being delayed, it is effective. It was fairly and swiftly applied in England until 1965. And the first time I went to England in 1977, even then the police were not carrying guns. They just carried a bobby stick. Why? Because capital punishment was a great deterrent to murder. 
But since it has been lifted, the murder rate has gone up in the United Kingdom some 7,000%, and the police officers wear the same kind of weapons ours wear in this nation. Capital punishment is God's way to protect life. Listen, when you steal, when you take something from me, I can be paid back. But when you take my life, you cannot pay it back, and therefore God has ordered the fullest possible consequence. Still others who oppose capital punishment will be quick to quote verses out of their context. A popular verse that's used is Romans 12 and verse 19. You can turn there if you wish or just listen to it. He's quoting the book of Proverbs, but notice what he says. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, God says there should be, does not say there should be no revenge, because God says there is to be revenge. But underscoring your thinking, I will, I will, I will repay. Never get in your mind that all revenge is wrong, because it is not. We learn, however, in Romans chapter 12, that you have no right personally to take revenge that God has given to the government. If people take the law into their own hands, you have anarchy in a society. But it is not wrong when God, through the minister that he has ordained, the government takes revenge. The government is God's minister. He is God's instrument in which to exercise this punishment. So understand that this verse, in its context in Romans 12, is not an exhortation as to what the government is to do. In the context, he's dealing with the relationships that we are to have with one another in the church and in the society at large. Paul is dealing with the way in which we are to relate to one another as individuals. You say, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor. If God gives that right to take another life, to the government, do I have a right to protect myself? Now, please understand that contextually, neither Romans 12, 19 is dealing with the issue of self-defense or some other verses that are typically taken out of context. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Listen carefully to what Moses wrote in Exodus chapter 22 when in dealing with thieves breaking into someone's home. Exodus 22, you might want to jot down this portion. It's an important text. Exodus 22 verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. When a person stole, the thief was simply required to restore what he stole, plus an additional penalty. And the reason, I think, for the fivefold and the fourfold penalties is because in this day, to steal a man's animal was to take away his livelihood that he needed to feed and to support his family. And no doubt, God viewed the penalty as a potential deterrent for someone to steal from you. But listen to what God says in the next two verses about theft as it relates to self-defense. Verse 2, if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, if it's dark, especially in a day when there's no electricity, and so you don't know if the thief who's breaking into your home at night, if his intent is simply to steal or murder or both, and you, in order to what you perceive is necessary to protect your life and the life of your wives and your children, God says there's no guilt on you. 
when a man knowingly, willingly, and deliberately breaks into your home at night and you don't know what his intention is, intention is because it's dark, God says you're not guilty if you take his life in order to protect your own. However, he quickly adds in the next verse, but if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. What does that mean? It means that if you see the man breaking into your house at night and you can tell that your life is not threatened, then you have no right to take his life. And if you do, then you are guilty of murder. And so that man in Texas some years back who agreed to protect his next door's neighbor's house when he was on vacation, and two people came and he saw them climbing through the window next door. He came out with his gun and he told them to stop. He called the police and he said, I'm going to shoot these people. They said, please don't shoot them, we're on the way. He said, I'm gonna shoot them. And before they could climb through the window, both men were shot dead. Now, under Texas law, he was exonerated, but I want to tell you, under God's law, he was guilty because his life was not being threatened, and in the process, he took their lives. When you come into the New Testament, you have to put a number of passages together because people will sometimes take these verses and say, but what about this or what about this? Well, let's think about some of those verses like Luke 22 and verse 6. Jesus told his disciples that they, when they were out there sharing the gospel and traveling here and there, that they were to take swords along with them. Why? To defend themselves. But then if you, and, and by the way, then you have examples like David with Saul. David had the opportunity to take Saul's life, but he did not. And Saul was after him. He wanted to murder him. Or think about Peter being scolded by the Lord in the night in which he was betrayed. And he told Peter to put away the sword. Not to mention, not only do they quote passages like Romans 12, that's quoting the book of Proverbs, the 20th chapter, most often they quote that text from the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5:39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, since most people in the world, even to this day, are right-handed, not everyone is blessed to be left-handed. When you, when you slap them with the right hand, you affected the right cheek. But understand, when you slap someone on the right cheek, it was not so much a reference to physical violence. It was a reference to a man's honor. And Christ's point is, is that you do not defend your honor but you shrug it off, and if necessary, you give them the other cheek. So you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture because the situation and the timing and the context is everything. And what applies to one or two people can apply to two or three million people. Now, my Amish and Seventh-day Adventist friends tell me that if you take another person's life that is not saved— then you are breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Now, it is true in the sixth commandment in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13, in the King James Version in the Old English, in virtually all English translations until about 100 years ago, it said you shall not kill. 
in the New King James and virtually, I don't, actually, I don't know of an English translation that has been done in the last hundred years that doesn't read, you shall not murder. And I've not read every single English translation because there's over 250 in our English tongue, but of the top 20, I've read them all, and they all say really what the Hebrew says, you shall not murder. Now, in the word, in the Hebrew language, there's a word for kill harag, and there's a word for murder, rasak. And they are two totally different words. The word for kill can be describing taking a human life or an animal deliberately or by accident, legally or illegally, morally or immorally. But the word for murder can only refer to an illegal and immoral taking of an innocent life. And that is the word that is used in the sixth commandment. That is why when I say I killed a mosquito, I don't say I murdered a mosquito. Or the worker was accidentally killed. Uh, We don't say he was murdered. English has changed. And so if the Ten Commandments prohibited killing, then we should all be vegetarians and pacifists. The King James used the word kill, and rightly so in the 17th century English, because in the sixth century, uh, in the sixth commandment in the English of 400 years ago, the word kill could be synonymous with the word murder, and context determined its meaning. But understand in Hebrew, just like in modern English, there's a clear distinction between the word murder and the word kill. And let me say parenthetically, you would not have to know Hebrew to figure this out. Because where the sixth commandment is found in the Torah, the law, we also refer to it as the Pentateuch or the book of Moses, these first five books. As you read the first five books, you discover that God sanctioned the death penalty for murder, that he allows killing in war, that he allows animal sacrifices. You know, you got these vegetarians who today say, I can't, you know, kill an animal. And well, listen, don't say that God says you shouldn't kill an animal. He instituted a sacrificial system to teach a very critical lesson that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so on the same Bible that contains the Ten Commandments, you find these other expressions of when life can be taken. And so sadly, many today cite the King James Version to justify either one of two positions, or sometimes three, a prohibition against capital punishment, an argument for pacifism, and some even for vegetarianism. Now, obviously, opponents of the death penalty are free to hold that view that they think a murderer should be allowed to live. But do not say that that's what the Word of God teaches because it does not. But understand, beyond the Torah, you can begin to read passages like in First and Second Samuel where King David is directed by God in particular campaigns and battles in which they were to take out the enemy. But then in the middle of all those campaigns, if you remember, on one occasion, David stayed home when he should have been at war. And God said, not only are you an adulterer, but because what you did to Uriah and his men, you are a murderer. Now, certainly, there have been wars in the history of man that have been wrong and immoral, and that's why it is critical that people who are in positions of leadership, ideally, 
be men with some moral theology. And if you develop a biblical theology of war, you will discover, first of all, that the Bible teaches the cause must be just to protect your loved ones and innocent people. Two, that your intentions must be noble, peace and freedom, not selfishness and greed. And that a war should be your last resort because God calls us first and foremost to be peacemakers and we do everything in our power to avoid war if possible. But again, I know there are pacifists, some I'm sure who are listening to me and I will receive their letters, which I typically do, or emails whenever I speak to this. They will say, Pastor Carl, how can you kill a man on a battlefield knowing if he's lost that you're sending him into a Christless eternity? Don't you love the lost? Or they might argue, what if he's a brother in Christ? Are you going to kill and take out another brother in the Lord? Well, listen, if you're fighting in a just war, that means he's fighting in an unjust war, and he shouldn't have been involved in that war to begin with. But understand that God often uses war and the threat of death as the stage in which to prepare us for eternity. Think about the thief on the cross. It's not until he's facing death straight in the eyes that he's converted. And if God in his sovereign purposes want to bring, bring, allow a war to bring someone's conversion, I mean, look what happened in the first Gulf War. Think about all the men who were baptized because our nation hadn't seen active war in a long time. And so many men came to Christ during that time. So God gives authority to the government to bear the sword. That's the first principle I want to underscore in your thinking this morning. As we think about government, God calls us to submit to the government. Secondly, it's important, and we need to hear it in these last days of growing lawlessness where people are foolishly and ignorantly being caught up in support of some of the recent violence, that we also understand that God calls us to pray for the government. God calls us to pray for the government. Uh, leave First Peter, hold your finger there, and go to First Timothy. It's to the left of where you're at. Go to First Timothy chapter 2. By the way, all the T books in the Bible are found all in the New Testament, and they're all found together. And so they're easy to remember, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. And the word Thessalonians is longer than the word Timothy, which is longer than the word Titus. So that's the order, okay? Go to First Timothy chapter 2, because here we find one of the most important passages in all the New Testament of instructing the church, the body of Christ, true believers, to pray for the government. He opens, describing here in verse 1, different kinds of prayer. Notice, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So verse 1 indicates that every local church is called to a ministry with God on behalf of all men. The word all men is very important throughout this text. And so we are going to discover that our ministry is exercised in both prayer and preaching in this chapter. The church is to preach the word of God, but the church is also to pray for all men. And he uses four different words to describe four different kinds of prayer. The first word is translated here in treaties. And it's a Greek word that comes uh, from a Greek verb that comes here as a noun that just means to express a need. God cares about your need. I hope you know that. When we come to James, we're going to learn we do not have because we do not ask. 
God says, cast all your cares, your needs upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. The second word that he mentions here is prayers. And it's the Greek word that refers to the sacredness of prayer. It is the idea of coming to God, and we are to realize who it is that we are coming to. It is an expression that our God is great, and that prayer, among other things, is an act of worship. That we are coming to one who is able, who is magnificent, who is all-powerful, and one who is to be worshipped as you study the word and its various usages in the New Testament. And so the second word is an important component of prayer because we come not just simply to express our needs and our wants but we come in worship and in reverence to God and when you come in this way remembering who God is and that he is able then you are much more likely to come in faith notice the third word first of all I urge then that entreaties and prayers and petitions petitions or the King James beautifully renders it intercessions that might communicate better in our day it's from a Greek word that conveyed the idea of someone whispering into the eye of, into the ear of a superior the need of another individual and so that's what we do when we intercede. We bring to the ear of God Almighty the needs of other people as we pray one for another. The first word, the fourth word that Paul mentions here, notice is thanksgivings. It's the Greek word eucharisteo in here in noun form, eucharistis. We get our word eucharist from it. And so the Lord's table, among other things, is a time of great thanksgiving. And we'll have it on Wednesday night. And I invite you to be here with me for that. But the giving of thanks is a vital part of what we are to do as a church. It's not just a gimme here and a gimme, gimme here, gear, gimme there, gimme everywhere, gimme, gimme. No, we are also to thank God. And sometimes it's a good thing as you pray with your children or your grandchildren to say, before we ask God for anything, all we want to do is thank him for something first. Just thank him. Just thank him. But notice again, the focus of prayer concerns all men. Anthropos, it's in the plural. We get our word anthropology from it. He's not saying all men excluding women. But he's talking about all men and women alike. In fact, the new New American Standard, the 2020 edition that's on computer and will come out next month, says all people. And maybe that communicates better in our culture. But then verse 2 says, especially though, notice, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So our prayers are to be all-inclusive, not just for our family, not just for our friends, not just for our fellow believers, but even for kings and all who are in authority, for all men, and I might add all living men, because there's no justification anywhere in Scripture, whereas some do on the 1st of November, we pray for the dead. The Scripture is clear. The moment you die, you're either in the presence of the Lord or you're in a place called Hades, waiting your final resting place in the lake of judgment. You cannot pray someone into heaven or out of hell. Their place is permanent. And to bring it down into the political realm, for kings and all who are in authority, if you are a Republican, then you should pray for the Democrat if he's in charge. Or if you are a Democrat, then you should pray for the Republican who's in charge. It does not matter if your senator or congressman or president is your choice or not. God says we are to pray for all men. 
for kings and all who are in authority. And what is the eventual result of praying for all men? Look at it, for kings and all who are in authority, so that, you might want to circle those words, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The results of praying for these kings and for all those who are in authority is so that we, meaning the body of Christ, the Christian church, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. Now, this is a remarkable admonition. Again, remember, 1 Timothy is written around the early 60s. And there was not, as best we know, a single king or ruler in the Roman Empire who considered himself a Christian. Christianity at this time is an unlawful religion, and it's prohibited in the Roman Empire. And of course, when Paul writes this instruction, once again, Nero, who I read to you about, is in charge. And while persecution has spasmodically broken out at this point, it's getting ready to take its fullest expression. So again, this is one of the most important passages in the New Testament that describe the relationship between the church and the state. So let's think it through for just a moment about the duty of the state and the duty of the church. There are three institutions, again, that God established. First, God established the family. Then he established the state. And third, he established the church. Now, the state's fundamental responsibility is not to educate you, not to give you stimulus money, not to give you a job and all these other things it is doing that is going to ultimately bankrupt us. Its job is to protect us. It is to put down evil, and it is to praise good. It is to maintain peace. And so whose prayer does God answer? The prayers of his people. And if we do not pray for the state, then who on earth will? So we are to pray for kings and presidents and governors, all who are in authority, so that we can live a tranquil and quiet life. Again, their job is to keep peace. All the way back in the Old Testament, put out in the margin, a good Old Testament illustration would be Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 through 7. Put that out in the margin next to this verse. And let me read it to you. In the context, the prophet Jeremiah is addressing those Jewish people who had been carried away to Babylon as slaves. And he commands these exiles to pray for the welfare and the peace of pagan Babylon. He told them, don't pay any attention to the false prophets among you. Prophets who said, you're not going to be here for 70 years. You're going home soon. He said, don't listen to them. Listen to what he wrote. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce because you're going to be here a while, 70 years. And that's not some number God pulled out of the air. There is a reason behind it if you've studied the scripture. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Decrease. And then Jeremiah the prophet instructed them in, these, in this way, with these words, and seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. Again, this is a secular power. Nevertheless, the godly Jews were to pray for the welfare of the nation of Babylon. And so it is the fundamental duty of the state to preserve law and order. The move by some groups to try and defund the police is going against the Word of God, which established government and its various institutions to protect the public at large. 
Tomorrow, when we conclude our message, God and Government, Dr. Brogy will look at the role of the church in relation to government and how when Christians are complacent in pointing out wickedness and evil, they are complicit in ushering in a one-world government and ultimately the appearance of the Antichrist. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you'd like to join Dr. Brogy and other Search the Scriptures listeners for a tour of the Holy Land this autumn, get all the details online at stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow, the conclusion of God and Government. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.